welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, July 4th, we are studying Psalm 5. In today's text, we join with King David in his morning prayer to God, the one who hates evildoers and the one who loves those who take refuge in him. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Stork. Pastor Stork serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield, Michigan. Pastor Stork, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks, Pastor Apple. It's good to be back with you this morning. So, Pastor Stork, we're looking at Psalm 5 today, and with the book of Psalms, there is not context in the same sense as in other parts of Scripture, because one psalm after another doesn't always follow very closely. Yep. What what do we need to know about the Psalms in general and any historical background that might be helpful when we look at Psalm 5 today? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Psalm 5 is a psalm of David. It has been given to us and most likely has been written by David, the, the king of Israel. Um, as we oftentimes find at the beginning of the Psalms, we have a little bit of information in regards to who or where the Psalm comes from. Um, we're told that the Psalm this week comes from, or from today comes from the choir master and it is played for, or is written for the flutes. Um, now, whether that means that the choir master is actually bringing that to a choir to sing, or whether it is one that is spoken by the choir master before a piece of music, we're not a hundred percent sure. Um, but within the context of the, the fullness of the book of Psalms, this one really highlights the, the struggle of evil, um, and how as a believer, we struggle with those and we also even struggle with our own sinfulness and how God deals with that um, and how, of course, we see God's mercy in in that sense as well. In terms of, of Psalms, even more generally than that, what kinds of, of features should we be looking for? It is a, a unique type of literature within the scriptures, or at least, you know, one that's different than, say, a narrative. We're looking at poetry here. What are some of the features, the the ways of reading the Psalms that we need to to make sure we use so that we can use it and appropriate it correctly? Yeah, so some of the things that we need to take to mind are some of the different categories that come up with the Psalms. Um, you have Psalms that are very liturgical, like Psalm 24. Um, you have other ones that are you know, we call them the imprecatory Psalms, Psalm 35 or 69, Psalm 109. Um, and of course, then we have other Psalms, um, that fit in with the, with the understanding of lament, which is, um, our Psalm for today. Um, those are Psalms of, of lament. So we keep in mind kind of the, 
the general theme and the general consensus of each of these different Psalms and kind of the, the area of life or even the, the liturgical area uh, that you can talk about in regards to how these might be used in worship or in the life of the church. Hmm. So when you say that we're going to see some features of lament here, what, what kinds of features are we looking for? Why, why is that a, a label that I think, and, and when I'll say this, when, when it comes to labeling the Psalms, they don't always fit into very neat categories. Some very clearly do. Like you said, imprecatory Psalms, usually you, you can see that right away. Certain Psalms of praise or, or liturgical Psalms, you can see that right away. Some Psalms have multiple features, but when you say lament, what kinds of things do you see in Psalm 5 that, that you see a lament here? So, for example, as we prepare to go into Psalm 5 here, you know, one of the things that the, the author of the Psalm um, that, that David writes is he, he looks out into the world and he sees evil. You know, he doesn't really tell us exactly what this evil looks like, but he, he looks out into the world and he, he realizes that God is not a God who delights in wickedness. He doesn't delight in evil. Um, he doesn't delight in the, in the sins that, you know, everybody else commits as well as David himself. So how then do you, you know, struggle with this idea of evil in the face of being a Christian? And, you know, how do we then look out at the evil that happens in the world today? And as David will do really early on in the psalm, he confesses God as, you know, king and God, my king and God. But if God is the king, if he's the God, then why does he allow these evil things to happen? Um, and, and so David laments these types of things. Um, he realizes, you know, ultimately then his own sinfulness and you know, what can we do but to turn back to God, to repent of our own sins and receive grace and forgiveness from him? Hmm. Yeah, this is a common theme that the Psalter picks up is this, this reality that evil attacks, evil attacks the people of God. And it often even seems that evil will prosper. Now, not all of those themes come up here, but that is certainly in the background. Mm -hmm. And so when we hear the psalmists and David here in Psalm 5 praying about that, that is one of those features of lament, asking God to do something about the evil that is there, the evil that we know he doesn't like, so please do something about it, or why aren't you doing something about it, Lord? All of these things are often involved in psalms that have this, this feature of lament, and so we do see some of that in Psalm 5 for sure. There's even going to be a little bit—I don't know that we, we wouldn't classify this as an imprecatory psalm, but there is prayer against those who do evil within this psalm and asking mm -hmm. God to do something about it. So we even see some of that. One of the other things that, that has always stood out to me about Psalm 5, and I, I said at the outset, you know, there's not always from one psalm to the next some sort of specific context— but it has always struck me that within the ordering of the Psalms, Psalm 4, which we have not studied here, we're, we're skipping over some of them here, we're not studying all the Psalms on Sharper Iron during the month of July, but Psalm 4 ends like this, "'In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety,' making Psalm 4 generally an appropriate psalm to speak and pray at night. And then you have Psalm mm -hmm. 5 in verse 3, 
speaking, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And so I don't, I don't know if this is the case, but it wouldn't surprise me if when they were compiling the Psalms into the Psalter as we have it, that they put Psalm 4 mm-hmm. and 5 next to each other on purpose so that you could you know, have the <laughs> scroll open in the evening you read and pray Psalm 4, and then when you get up the next morning, here we are in Psalm 5 for a, a prayer for the morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, yeah, again, that, I don't that know makes if that's the case or not. But I, like, I have no idea. <laughs> that's right. That's right. There's no, as you pointed out in the, in the superscription, this is a Psalm of David. So is Psalm 4. Neither one gives us any particular historical background within David's life. But it has always struck me yeah. that, as, at least as we still use the Psalter as Christians, this is one of those moments where you just leave your Bible open after you've prayed Psalm 4 one evening, wake up and pray Psalm 5 the next morning. So, the next morning, yeah. Fantastic. Any other introductory comments, Pastor Stork, before we look at this text? No, I think we're good. All right. So this is Psalm 5, the superscription, to the choir master for the flutes, a Psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my God and my my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. That's our text for today. That is Psalm 5. Pastor Stork, we've kind of talked about some of the main themes within the psalm already. In terms of its its structure, and again, this is not always the an easy or... Uh, unified task. Sometimes there are disagreements among scholars and, and pastors as to how to, to group mm-hmm. psalms, but how would you structure this psalm? Which How do you see the, I don't know, stanzas maybe not quite the right way of speaking, but how do you how do you put the verses together here, just as an overarching picture? Yeah, so I would probably put verses one through three together um, yeah, as just kind of an, an introductory, um, you know, opening of the prayer. Who are we praying to? Um, and David tells us, my King and my God, um, O Lord is the one who we, the, the Lord who created heaven and earth. This is the God that we are praying to. This is the one that we are bringing our words to this morning. Um, and then you get on to the next section, um, where David begins to talk about God's anger, um, towards those who delight in wickedness, those who are evil. Um, so that would probably be about verses four through four through six. Um, but then we start to see a little bit of a shift after that, um, because 
I think David then realizes his own sinfulness after he confesses in verses four through six, the evil of the world. So David realizes that, oh my gosh, yes, all of this wickedness is in the world, but I am not exempt from that wickedness. I've, you know, I've done my own, I've, you know, done my own sins. I, I've spoken evil about others. I've, you know, thought evil, you know, I, I've done evil. But then, of course, he realizes that, you know, he's also done that. And so what does he do? Well, he bows down towards God. He, he realizes that um, God does love sinners. Um, and the only thing that he can do, of course, is come to, come to the Lord in repentance and prayer. And then, of course, the last couple sections, um, he goes on in verses 9 and 10. Um, again, he speaks about the enemies of God and desires God's, um, God's action against them. And then finally, in verses 11 and 12, there are verses of great joy, um, a blessing towards God. All right, well, let's kind of take it then in that, in those sections. Verses 1 through 3, I think you're exactly right, do give an introduction to this prayer as a whole. David cries out before the Lord. T take us into some of the features that we see in the way David prays in the first three verses of this psalm. Yeah, so so as David gets us into Psalm, um, psalm 5, I, I love how he actually does this. Um, it's almost as if he is, um, if he, if his words that are coming to God are in some ways growing. So verse one starts out this way. It says, give ear to my words, O Lord. So Lord, hear what I have to say. And then the second half of verse one goes on to this. It says, consider my groaning. So we go from just, Lord, hear my words, to, Lord, I'm groaning. Yeah. Then it goes on in verse 2 to almost another step where he says, give attention to the sound of my cry. And, you know, as I hear those words, as I, as I read them, it's almost as if David is maybe in a, in a state of suffering. Um, like you said before, Pastor Apple, we're not given a whole lot of details about what David, you know, what are the circumstances of Psalm five, but if we want to lead it over from four, you know, when David went to sleep, if you want to make that connection to verse five or to chapter five, and David wakes up in the morning and he starts to pray to God, give ear to my words, O Lord you know, what has happened in this intermediate time? You know, why am I groaning? But he wants the Lord to consider that. He wants the Lord to, to hear what he has to say. Um, not as just as somebody who is being calm or someone who, you know, is piously sitting there, you know, with their hands prayed, you know, calmly praying, whether it's the Psalms or the Lord's prayer or some of their other prayers, but this, this almost seems like David is in, in distress and, and he's crying out to God and he just keeps stepping it up. Lord, yeah. hear me, you know, consider my groaning, 
give attention to the sound of my cry. Yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right to see that uh, intensification as David prays here. As you said, when you've got, he st starts by talking about his words, then you have his groaning, you have his cry, and then the fact that, you know, it's first give ear and then give attention. So there, I do see that same intensification within these first couple of verses. And as we pointed out previously, this is one of the features of Hebrew poetry that's called parallelism where one phrase is expanded upon or explained by the next, or one verse is explained and expanded upon by the next. So we're seeing that here. And it's it's in that context, then, as you see the intensification of David's distress, whatever is whatever particular situation is causing him to cry mm -hmm. out in this way, I think you also see within these verses an intensification of his trust. And, mm -hmm. and I'll let you comment on this, but the, the two things that I see that show an, what I would say is an intensification of his trust are the way that he moves from verse one to say, give ear to my words, O Lord. But then by verse two, he's praying to, O Lord, the Lord, as my King and my God. So he's he knows that the Lord, Yahweh, is actually his King, his God. So I see it an intensification just in that possessive pronoun. And I also think that that the in the morning is a part of that intensification. You know, it, uh, we were talking earlier about, you know, you pray one in the night, you pray Psalm four in the night, you pray Psalm five in the morning. But I think the mention of morning here isn't simply to tell you when you can pray it, but it's a reminder that mm -hmm. this is what David's doing when he gets up. He gets up and he prays because he knows that the Lord's going to hear. And, and mm -hmm. he's watching for the Lord to answer because he knows the Lord will. And so I really think the, the fact that he's praying in the morning is a, a sign of his, again, that intensification of his trust, that he knows he better do this first thing in the morning, and he, he needs to and he wants to do this first thing in the morning because the Lord is going to listen and answer. Yeah, um, I, I totally agree. The, the fact is, <laughs> don't you love that? Uh, but the fact is, I, I think you're the, the idea that David calls him, you know, he goes from, oh Lord to my King and my God. And it is a, a, a realization that David knows that the Lord who has created all things, who is um, with the one who has brought the children of Israel out of the, the Red Sea. I mean, all the actions of God, but he's not just the God in general, but David is, you know, I, I don't always like to use this type of language, but David realizes that there is a relationship there, that he is not just the Lord, but that this is his king. David's not, you know, king, just king himself, but he has a king and he has a God and this king, you know, the king, the God, father, son, and Holy spirit listens to what David has to say. And, and I think the same thing holds true for us as, as Christians. You know, when we pray to God, we're not just praying to some, you know, deity out there in the world, but the fact is we are ultimately praying to our God. He, he yeah. is our God. He is 
our Savior. He is our Lord, um, and He hears our prayers. He He knows our struggles. He knows how many hairs are on the top of our head, um, and, and so we can crawl, cry to Him as one that He knows intimately. So again, it's not like we're we're just getting in line with everybody else and and saying our prayers, but we are as a child talking to our father and our father who art in heaven, my father who art in heaven. Um, and, and that's what David is here. Dad, you know, father, listen to me, give attention to the sound of my cry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm glad you brought in the Lord's prayer. Cause that's exactly what I was thinking when I, when we, when we talk about the Lord's prayer, just the introduction, our father who art in heaven, you could, you could spend so much time just meditating on the word our within that prayer. And it's very mm-hmm. much related to what we're talking about here, that that David just doesn't pray to the king or the God. He prays to his king, to his God. And so Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father, which is just a, a marvelous thing that we are given to do that, that, that we can actually approach God as, as you said, my Father. Now, he's not just my Father, he's yours as well, so we do pray our but there, there mm-hmm. is that still that sense of, of possessive, that he is my father. And so I can cry out to him with that confidence that he will listen. Now, now David here doesn't use the term father, but he does, in addition to naming him Yahweh, Lord, in verse 1, and speaking of him as God in verse 2, he also calls him my king. Talk a little bit about the significance of, of calling upon God as the king, and again, his king in this context. Yeah. He, he realizes that Yahweh um, reigns over all things. Um, and, and so David here doesn't just have hope for today or this morning, but David realizes and has hope for the future as well. Um, so we acknowledge that, you know, again, we live under the grace of God. We don't just live on our own. But as servants of the king, that's what we do. We serve. We serve our king. Um, he rules over us. He makes decisions for us. He, he leads and guides us as a good king would do, um, providing for his people. Again, going back to the, to the Lord's Prayer, our, our king and our God provides us with our daily bread. Um, he gives us all the things that we need. And he also watches over and protects us as David ties in at the very end of Psalm 5. Um, so again, that whole idea and understanding that God is, God is our king um, allows us to be reminded that, you know, this isn't just about, again, um, me and some deity out there in the world. This is about somebody who, this is about a God who cares about me, who knows me, um, and wants to do what is best for me. Um, even though that may not necessarily be always what I want. It is also striking to just to remember who David is. He is king of Israel. Now, I suppose he could have composed this before he was king. We know that David did sing to Saul on the harp, probably singing psalms already before he became king. But knowing David as king, most typically, to hear him cry out to the Lord as his king is a a good reminder when we think about earthly rulers 
that although they may have authority here and now in this life, it always comes from God, and He does remain king over all. That's maybe a, a side tangent, but I, I think it's at least worth noting that David the king acknowledges that the Lord, Yahweh, is his king more so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that and that's a good reminder for us as Christians that even though we are called to obey and uphold, you know, the, the government and, and the leaders that have been placed over us, even them, um, even our leaders, even the president, the Congress, uh, the governor, um, all the leaders over us ultimately are under God himself. He, he is the ultimate authority. Um, and we trust in him above all things. Um, I always remind my members that, you know, the Lord is the one who is the king. He is the one who rules over all things and that ultimately we trust him in all circumstances. Um, we know that unfortunately those earthly rulers that we have are sinners just like us. Um, you know, they're, they're selfish. They're, uh, they can be led by anger and, you know, uh, certain other selfish reasons. Um, but ultimately that God rules in, in a different way. Um, and, and that's where we place our trust and our hope. That's right. David is crying out to the Lord, his king. Now he does so in the morning there in verse three. We've talked a little bit about that, the, the nature of urgency within that, the trust that David has. Any, any more there on verse three with David crying out in the morning and trusting the Lord's going to hear him and, and even the, the note of the sacrifice that's there? Yeah. So David speaks about pouring out or, or, or giving a, a sacrifice that morning. I, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch and give whether David is giving an actual animal sacrifice in the morning, um, or if it's a, just a sacrifice of praise, he's, he's coming to God before he begins his day. And so he raises up, a you know, a sacrifice of praise to God, um, that, you know, he knows that his day is going to be lived under God's grace. Um, he gives thanks to God for another new day and, you know, ultimately that the Lord will be the one who watches over him in all that happens. That's right. That's right. And so David watches in expectation for the way the Lord will watch over him in the face of evil doers. That's how he will continue the prayer. We're going to keep looking at this prayer in Psalm 5 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron. We're talking to Pastor Tim Stork this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality.
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, July 4th. We're studying Psalm 5 with Pastor Tim Stork. He serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield, Michigan. Pastor Stork, prior to the break, we were looking at verses 1 to 3, David's introduction to the prayer. He cries out with intensification in terms of his distress, but also in his trust. Verses 4 through 6 come next and describe begin to describe who this God is that David is crying out to. And here he is a God who does not delight in wickedness. Take us into the way that David's prayer continues in verses 4 to 6. Yeah. So David knows what kind of God he has. He has a holy God. And as we learned um, in confirmation class, you know, when you have a holy God, he is someone who um, does not delight in wickedness. In fact, he is an enemy of wickedness and, and, and sin. And so David leads us into that with, with verse four, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Um, at, when I look at this and I, and I think about this, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Well, you know, he is not one who, you know, finds joy in, in sin. Um, I mentioned occasionally to my, to my folks here at Good Shepherd, I, I always remind them, I said, oh, be careful because if your God hates the same people that you do, you probably don't have the true God. And, and, and I always remind them of that. I said, you know, yes, of course, you know, there are people out there who are wicked and who are evil and who do certain things and, you know, speak certain things. I said, but you have to be careful that you don't assume that the people that you hate are the exact same people that God hates. The fact is though, yes, God does not delight in wickedness, but not also when he sees the wickedness of the world, he knows what is going through man's heart. He realizes and knows, um, you know, the, the reasons that people are doing things. Um, and, and then ultimately, you know, God cannot stand evil. And, and that takes it to the other side of what I tell my folks is the fact that the sins that you overlook, whether it's in the leaders that you appreciate, whether it's in, you know, your family or your friends, you know, the, the, the wickedness and the evil that we've all just kind of come to, oh, well, that's an okay thing for them to do. It's not so bad. Guess what? It is, you know, God doesn't look at them and wink his eye and say, oh, I'm going to pat him on the head and say, you know, well, that's okay, little Johnny. Well, no, it's sin. It is wickedness. And, and God doesn't delight in that. Uh, you know, even though we may say that's okay, God does not. Yeah. Well, and so and he I goes think... on. He says, keep going. Yeah. So he goes on. He says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Um, and, and most of the time, you know, you would look at this and, you know, most people would probably say, wait a minute, all evildoers? You know, and again, trying to, to understand, well, what is an evildoer? 
you know, I, I think a lot of, you know, I don't want to paint with too wide of a brush, but I'm going to do it anyways. You know, when we hear that word evildoer, you know, if we don't think about ourselves, I'm not really an evildoer. You know, I, I may sin occasionally, but I'm not really an evildoer. Now, you know, you pick out somebody who's sitting, you know, in maximum security prison here in Michigan and say, now that's an evildoer. We know what an evildoer is, but I'm not that. Um, because God could never hate me. You know, I'm, I'm too good of a person. Um, so, you know, and then he goes on and he says, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the, the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And I mean, again, we, we see this intensification here that the Lord destroys those who speak lies and the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. It's not the Lord dislikes the, you know, the liar and the deceitful and the bloodthirsty. It's no, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Yeah, I think I think that language that's used here is is what is so striking because I think it's it's very easy for most of us to hear something like God hates wickedness, and like we understand that as you said, God is holy; mm -hmm. He cannot stand sin; He will not tolerate it. Period. But it's another thing, I think, at least in our ears, to hear God say, "Not I hate wickedness," but to say, "I hate the wicked." which is mm -hmm. what this says. It doesn't only say that God hates evil. It says that God hates evildoers. And it, it, it does define, at least within the context of this psalm, what that evil doing looks like. It looks like being boastful. It looks like speaking lies. It looks like being deceitful and bloodthirsty. And to hear that God hates those people is even stronger, and I think does impress upon us the absolute seriousness of our sin, and to the point that we can't just say, well, yeah, I'm just going to try to separate myself from my sin somehow. No, I am the one who has committed it, and if I'm going to, if I stay there where I've committed the sin, and I start to love it, and I start to embrace it, then it's not just that God hates my sin. This is saying God, God hates the one who, who embraces it and does it. Now, not to the point that he desires their damnation. We no. know from Scripture that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he has absolutely no pleasure in the death of the wicked. As much as he does not delight in sin and does not delight in evildoers, he also does not delight in the death of evildoers. But if that's yep. what the evildoer chooses, that's what he gives them. And I do think to hear the language that David uses here of, of the way God abhors and hates those who do evil should catch our attention and should impress upon us the great seriousness of sin that we would, if we would choose to embrace it and, and hold fast to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think this is one of the reasons why uh, as Christians, sometimes we, we struggle with our thoughts about repentance and, and our own repentance is, you know, when we think about evil and wickedness and, you know, the sins that we bring before God, we, you know, we, we talk about, you know, speeding and, and sometimes as pastors, we do this in our sermons, unfortunately, too, you know, when we, when we talk about sin and, you know, we, we almost kind of 
poo-poo it a little bit. We're, you know, we don't make it sound all that bad. But ultimately, the fact is, sin is not just, you know, speeding 10 miles over the speed limit or, you know, occasionally saying something bad, but the, the depths of sin and evil and, and wickedness and realizing that it's more than that. Um, it can go into the depths of a person. Um, and that, you know, as we come before God on Sunday morning or whenever we come to the divine service or whenever we come before God to confess our sins, we don't just say, you know, Lord, sorry, I sped this week or Lord, sorry, I, you know, got angry with my wife this week, but that we understand that, you know, our sin is deeper than that. It's, it's more than that. Um, Lord, you know, I've trusted in other gods this week. I have not trusted in you above all things. Um, Lord, I've desired to hurt my neighbor by what I've said, how I've treated him or how I've not treated him. Um, and, and realizing that if we only come before God with those other things, which are still sins, but realizing that our sinfulness is, you know, not, or at least thinking that our sinfulness isn't too bad. Well, then that'll continues to allow us to, you know, kind of find comfort in our sin and say, well, you know, I'm not that bad of a person, you know, compared to the, the person sitting next to you in the pew and you're like, well, that's a real sinner, but you don't want to point that same finger back at yourself and say, you know, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I think, what David is about to come to here. Yeah, I I think so. I mean, as you're talking there about the way that we would confess our sins, I I was reminded of the way that that John writes in his first epistle. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, John says that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And that verse 6 especially, I think, is very applicable to what you're saying about the way we would confess our sins. If we think that the the sins that we've committed are not darkness, and we think that we can keep walking in that darkness while trying to have fellowship with God, we're lying. And we can't, because God hates this darkness, and he wants to expel that darkness from us, which is where, where John's going to go in his first epistle, as we, we mm-hmm. studied not that long ago here on Sharper Iron. And I think you're right, David starts to go there too, because after he, he speaks about the Lord being a God who doesn't delight in wickedness, and he hates the evildoer, now he is going to talk about those whom God loves, and David will include himself in that group in verses 7 through 8. But I think we need to understand why David is included in that group whom God loves, who has the steadfast love of the Lord. So take us into verses 7 and 8, Pastor Stork. Yeah. So verse 7, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. And it's that that center statement that is so important within this context. It's, David doesn't just enter into God's presence on his own because David realizes that looking back in verses four, five, and six, David is this evildoer. He he realizes that, you know, the wickedness that he himself has committed is something that God does not delight in. And, And 
there is no way that David can come before the true God, before his king and his God, before Yahweh, before the Lord, on any of his own merits. All of his deeds are, you know, polluted with sin, um, with his own selfishness. And, and so David, in a way, here, here's David's confession. I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. The only way that David can come into the presence of God is only by God's mercy, is only by God's love. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. And so again, David understands and confesses that again, Lord, I'm, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. So I, I think one of the, one of the keys, Pastor Stork there in verse seven, and I, I'm right with you on the steadfast love of the Lord being huge in that first phrase that David knows that he's going to enter into the Lord's house because of the Lord's love for him. And that's that's such an important point. What struck me, though, about this verse is, again, the way the parallelism works in verse 7, at least the way that I think it works, is that the, the abundance of God's steadfast love, in which David enters his house in the first part, the steadfast love goes together with the fear that David has for the Lord in the second part. So he's going to bow down toward God's holy temple in the fear of God. And it, it really struck me how those two things go together, that you've got the steadfast love of the Lord and David's fear of the Lord attached. And I, I really think that that, that fear of the Lord is a, a key concept here when it comes to, well, what does it mean if, if God hates the evildoer, how do I, how do I get out of that? How do, how do I, how do I, you know, not receive his, his hate eternally? How do I, and that the answer is in the Lord's steadfast love, and how do I respond to that? In the proper fear of Him, mm -hmm. rather than trying yeah. to. So know, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So David has to come before God in repentance. Um, that's that's the proper fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, and so David David has to come before God. He realizes and has to lay before God his sin. Lord, I am a poor, miserable sinner. Um, you know, God, you deserve to forsake me because of my sin, but I come before you in humble repentance, um, in fear of you, knowing that, you know, what you could do to me because of my sin, but out of that steadfast love that ultimately is shown in the death of Christ, can I come down? and bow down and, you know, enter into your house and bow down before your holy temple. That, that's the only way that, you know, David can be in the presence of his God. And, and ultimately, that's the only reason why God, you know, hears his prayer here in, in Psalm chapter 5 is, is because David knows his proper place with the Lord, that he is, you know, the servant, um, even though he is the king of the people, but that ultimately he comes before God in this humble repentance and faith that God will forgive him. And so I, I think then verse 8 goes together with that, as David prays from that 
faith and repentance, asking God to continue to lead him in this righteousness while his enemies are are attacking. Yeah. So now, Lord, lead me um, because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Um, David, David desires that the Lord would protect him, that, that he would guide him, um, you know, as he faces the wicked, guide me my, guide me by your righteousness on account of my adversaries. Um, so make your way straight before me, take the obstacles and the curves, the tests and the, the temptations, um, that, you know, make my life difficult, remove them if, if it would be your will. Um, that I may again walk in your righteousness. Yeah, yeah, and, and and even in the face of those enemies, as they would seek to harm David, Lord, keep me in your righteousness. Keep me on that that way. To use the language of Psalm one, which we did just study, keep me in your way, while all of these other enemies around me would seek to draw me astray. You keep me in your righteousness, in your way, and I think that helps us to see where David goes next. In verses 9 and 10, he begins to pray about what the evildoers are doing, and even praying against the evil that they're doing. Take us into verses 9 and 10. Yeah. So, verse 9, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their, Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. I mean, David really seems to be, um, speaking about sins of, of the mouth and, and of the tongue, there, there is no truth. These are liars. Uh, you know, all the words that they speak are, are lies. And in fact, their, their own self is destruction. And again, I think you, you know, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, that, that fact that we, um, have to realize that our, our inmost self you know, it's not just again about these little sins that we, you know, commit, but David realizes that their sinfulness is ultimately wrapped up in who they are. Um, it, it, it has become their very self. They, they become so wrapped up in, in that sinfulness in their selfishness and in their own heart's desire, um, that ultimately it is destruction. And then he goes on, it's always interested me when I've seen this, their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Um, again, you know, they're devoid of life. I I don't know. (laughs) Walking dead. I mean, that's the first, that's the first thing that comes to mind when I think about that is that TV show, the walking dead. And I mean, they're just. There's nothing in them, you know, they're, they're just, I don't, I don't know, you know, they're so wrapped up in their sinfulness that, you know, life doesn't even seem to be in them anymore. Yeah. Um, are they, are they even enjoying life or are they so, you know, set forth in their sinfulness that they don't care about anything else? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. The picture that I have here is that every time they open their mouth, 
there's nothing but lies. There's nothing but death that comes forward. It's very, I mean, now that I, I think more about it, it reminds me of the way that Jesus speaks of the evil one in John chapter 8, where he mm. says whenever whenever the devil opens his mouth, he's lying because he's the father of lies. And here the evildoers, I think, are very much connected to that, that every time they open their mouth, lies and death come forth. And so against, and I think that that's helpful as we think about using this prayer and, and making that connection to ultimately the father of lies is who we're going to pray against in this. Because that's what David does in verse 10. Talk about the, the prayer that he, you know, he says, deal with them, Lord. Yeah. So verse 10, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out for they have rebelled against you. Um, David, David doesn't hold back here. Um, he, he seems it, it, you know, there doesn't seem to be any pity here from David. Um, he, you know, he, he finds the sin that these people are committing to, to be troubling. Um, at the same time, you know, he does seem to be conflicted with some of the things that are going on. Um, but ultimately again, um, you know, he desires for them to, to come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, he knows that life or that words can give life uh, and that, you know, the falsehood and the lies can destroy, um, and so in a way he desires that God would let them fall, hopefully with the intention that they will come to a realization that they have sinned against God and that they will also be led to repentance. Yeah, that's right. So take us then, we've got about four minutes here. I want to make sure we get to these last two verses, Pastor Stork. Okay. Takes into the way that David concludes in verses 11 and 12. So as David concludes the psalm, he gives us something still to rejoice in, in the midst of all of this sinfulness. Because again, here David is struggling with the fact that we have this good and gracious God who still lets sin happen in the world. So he starts with this. He says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Yes, there's great sin in this world. There is great evil. There are people who speak lies and, you know, speak deceitfully. But God is still the one who is the king over this world. And so as Christians, as believers in him, let's rejoice. We can still rejoice in what God has done. Let them ever sing for joy. And then, God, spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. May they know, Lord, that you protect them, that you watch over and, and see them, um, that, that you put your, your shield over them, and that we can exalt in you, knowing of your good and gracious promise, um, you know, as David goes on in Psalm 23 to talk about the Lord being the good shepherd. This is a good, you know, connection there is the fact that the good shepherd 
protects his sheep. He watches over them. He protects them. Um, that those who love your name may exult in you. That even in the midst of the, the evil that happens to us in this world, we can continue to exalt in God. For we know that the Lord blesses the righteous, that you cover him with favor as with a shield. Um, and we know that the Lord tells us in his word that he, he provides for us. He blesses us. He, he cares for us. He's given his son to die for us. Um, and though the world tells us all, you know, that none of that is true. We know that by God's word, it is, um, his word is true and, and it speaks us righteous. And by that, um, we can have faith and peace and strength in, in the face of the evil of this world. Pastor Tim Stork is pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield, Michigan. He has been helping us today to study Psalm 5. Pastor Stork, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Pastor Apple. It's always a pleasure to be with you. The Lord, the one true God, does not delight in wickedness. He does not delight in those who do evil. How will you and I be rescued from the evil that dwells within our hearts? only through the steadfast love of this same one true God, the one who gave his Son, Jesus Christ, as the sacrifice for our sins. He gave his life in our place. He rose from the dead to grant us eternal life with him, and in the fear of him, he counts us as those whom he loves. And so we call out to him in the face of evil. We cry out to him for help, knowing that he will hear our prayer. He will answer us and he will protect us as a shield. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Psalm 5, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.